This morning reading is taken from John chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, have you, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There were fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This is now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples, after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Blessed Lord God, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life which you have given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God for ever and ever. Amen. Would you sit, please? The Lord is risen. risen the season has changed, hasn't it? It's still Easter season. After that long darkness of Lent and the brief exaltation of Palm Sunday and the sorrow and sorrow of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, Easter season dawns, not just for one Sunday in our church's year, but for many. And the unshakable conviction that Jesus' early disciples had that something had occurred early in the morning on that first Easter Sunday, the morning of the great discovery, we might call it, that Jesus had risen from the dead, there at the empty tomb were two Marys, you might have reflected on this last week, told by an angel, go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. So they were in Jerusalem. They're told that Jesus is going ahead to Galilee and there they are told, there in Galilee, you will see him. 
And here in our passage in John's Gospel that was read to us this morning, the risen Lord Jesus is in fact in Galilee. That shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because Jesus always does what he says he will do in his word. So here he is in Galilee. Come, he issues an invitation. Come to the disciples and have breakfast with me on the beach. And none of them dared ask, who are you? For strangely, they knew it was the risen Lord. And here is Jesus risen. And some of these disciples on the boat in the very north of the Sea of Galilee know very well that it is Jesus, yet somehow he is amazingly, transformingly different. Someone belonging to a whole new order of existence. Someone who the Apostle Paul would later describe as the first fruits of a new creation. And what is he doing? I mean, what might we expect Jesus to be doing after his resurrection? They're on the shores of Galilee. I don't know. Might he be preaching a sermon? Might he be rebuking the disciples for their unbelief and their scattering at the cross? I mean, that's what I might have done. But no, Jesus is putting them at ease. He's reassuring them and inviting him to join him for a breakfast which he has prepared. It's a wonderful event. It's one of the most, for me, one of the most moving post-resurrection appearances which dominate the two final chapters of John's Gospel. It's a story full of power and resonance. It looks back, as we'll see in a moment, but it also looks forward. It's grand, but it's simple. It's every day, but somehow because it's the resurrection and it's Jesus, it's, it's out of this world. And it's just like the resurrection itself, isn't it? Christ has risen. These, these chapters in John's gospel shout, risen not just in hearts and minds, but physically. I'm a bishop that believes that Jesus rose physically from the grave, actually and truly. And, and does not the Bible, in all its revelation, and do not the creeds of the church, which we have received from our forebears, categorically insist that basic truth, that underlying fact, that fundamental reality, that Jesus Christ is risen life-transformingly from the grave. You know, in North America, we're allowed to say amen. And I often say, as Anglicans, we're allowed to say amen as well. He's risen life transformingly from the grave. Oh, hallelujah. So from the first to the last, that is the witness, is it not, of the New Testament. He is risen. And that's where John was, in fact, in chapter 20, one chapter before our passage this morning, when he wrote, these things are written that you may believe. In fact, that you may, in Greek, go on believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by going on believing, you may have life in His name. It's, it's reassuring. And, and, and Luke begins exactly the same place in, 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 in Acts of the Apostles, in chapter 1 and verse 3. He writes, He presented Himself alive to them after His suffering by many proofs appearing to them. You see, the resurrection is not just part of the Christian story. It is at its heart. And the resurrection is not a quaint relic from another time or a fairy tale or a theological relic. Christianity's central claim concerns the resurrection who was someone of a contemporary of those individuals 
who first proclaimed the resurrection message. I don't know why the church has such problem with this. It's not rocket science, is it? There was a tomb. Jesus died on the cross. He was placed in it for three days. He rose again. It's not that difficult. No theological degree required. You see, the life, ministry, and teaching and miracles of Jesus were unparalleled, and death could not hold him down. And such a claim has never been made with any shred of credibility about any other person on this planet back then or today. Can you tell I'm excited about these things? I get a bit wound up over the resurrection, but I don't apologize for it. Something changed those first followers and through them, something changed, surely, in Christchurch, in Washington, D.C., where I live. And yes, initially, of course, they had hoped, hadn't they, that Jesus would bring some sort of national renewal and the fulfillment of Israel's hope, and they rested on those Old Testament promises, and, but they had seen him crucified on Good Friday. And all those hopes appear to have been dissolved. Objectively speaking, nothing had changed. After the resurrection, Israel was not liberated. The Romans, through Pontius Pilate, still governed Judea. Injustice and oppression was still on the, use, on the loose. And yet, something had happened to convince those disciples that, of Jesus that a new day had dawned. And there was no looking back. And they knew they knew that dead people just didn't rise out of the tombs in Jerusalem, yet their unshakable conviction based on what they saw with their own eyes was that Jesus was alive. In John chapter 21, our Bible reading this morning, in the first 14 verses, is one of those faith-infusing moments. Throughout his gospel, the Apostle John seems to love signs. Have you noticed that? the wedding at Cana, the raising of Lazarus, the woman at the well. And here in our gospel reading is, is an event that signals beyond itself something of much wider significance. Again, back in chapter 20, it appears that John is finished. He's finished writing his account, and he wraps it up, if you look sometime, rather neatly. But then at the beginning of chapter 21, it's as if he thinks, no, hang on, there's more. And John is so full of the resurrection, he wants to bring us more and more and more. And he wants us to be sure that the resurrection means what it's meant to mean. And that it's really happened. And that's why he adds this wonderful passage, this epilogue in a sense in John chapter 21. Now being good Anglicans, you'll all have Bibles of some description or another. Uh, you might have them electronically or in hard printed form like mine. Or we might even be able to put the passage, or, or you're ahead of me brother back up on the screen. Unlike my mother, I don't have eyes in the back of my head. Somehow she did. It was very helpful to my upbringing, I'm sure. John chapter 21 is an important passage for us. Have a look at it with me. The scene shifts, doesn't it? Verse 1 from Jerusalem and the, the post-Passover period back up to the north, to Galilee. For these seven disciples, they're listed there, verse 2, and no doubt they were feeling rather strange without Jesus, uncertain perhaps. No doubt there was a lot of questions going on in their minds as Brenda and I read this passage before church this morning. I tried to put myself in their place thinking, 
what would they have been thinking? They went back up into the north. They went perhaps in response to the invitation from Jesus there at the tomb. But what did they do? What was going on in their minds? Peter again, the initiator, look verse 3. He says, I'm going fishing. Seems a rather strange thing to do, but that's what he does. I mean, it was his, his background in the past. Something practical, perhaps something familiar for him, something safe, something that he knows what to do, although they weren't very successful, were they? A little bit like one of those fishing events you go on with your father or someone when you want to uh, catch a lot of fish and tell the great stories. And they caught nothing and they fished all night, not just for a couple of hours. And then look back in verse 1, Jesus appears. There he is, verse 4, picture it if you can, standing on the shore. And that phrase in verse 1 is interesting because in the Greek it literally means he made, he made manifest or he made visible or he made known what was hidden. He appeared, making known what was hidden. Standing there on the shore, he revealed himself as he does to us today through his word. And it's significant that nowhere in the New Testament accounts of the post-Easter period do people, in fact, go looking for Jesus. Think about that. Jesus, in fact, is in complete control then, the resurrected Jesus, as he is this morning. He chooses his moments. He chooses to whom he will reveal himself. And that's interesting if you tend to be a Calvinist like me. As we reflect on the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, we must remember that we are talking about a great mystery. When the gospel writers write about the risen body of Jesus, they are very much on the frontiers of language and experience. The risen Lord Jesus, we know, is no longer constrained in his body by material limitations. It's very appealing, isn't it? The Lord can pass through a sealed tomb. Imagine that. A locked door. No barrier to him at all. He's not a ghost because he eats uh, actual fish and chips or fish and bread in his case. He can immediately appear and disappear. He's physical and yet different. And much of the time, he is not visible to human eyes. And yet we, we know he can see, he can talk, he can teach, he can eat, he can be touched. And at times his appearance must have been reassuringly ordinary for Peter and the others. And at other times, blatantly radiant. But note, my brothers and sisters, as I said, no ghost here, no disembodied spirit. This is a new physical body in which the spirit is supreme, unfettered by time or space, free from uh, dependence on an environment, gloriously transformed, and yet, and yet, it's a real physical body. And in a true sense, it is the same body yet transformed, which is sometimes hard to define, which briefly delays or prevents recognition. That's what was happening for the disciples. We see this back in John 20. Do you remember? When Mary sees the Lord in the tomb. It's a stunning account. She thinks he's the gardener. Thank God Jesus wasn't bothered by these things. I mean, I don't know how you would feel if you were Jesus and someone thought you were the gardener. 
but Mary is blinded in some respects by the physical resurrection of her Lord and considers him as a gardener. And here in John 21, despite having seen the risen Jesus on a previous occasion in Jerusalem, they do not seem to recognize him immediately. I don't know, is it the early morning mist on the lakeside in Galilee? I've been there on those mornings. It's, it's strangely airy. Who knows? Who can tell? But surely, uh, uh, surely shot through this passage, there's a nervousness in the disciples. There's a sort of hesitancy of recognition. Look down in verse 12. As they meet their Lord again, we read, None of them dared ask him, Who are you? None of them asked that. So let's look at our passage as it unfolds. Back at the beginning in verse 5, Jesus speaks very reassuringly. He calls them children. I don't know what we might say. We might use the word lads in Christchurch. Uh, in Greek, it's full of affection. It's, it's how I like to and how I endeavor to encourage those of us who are responding in this age of revisionism in our Anglican church to stand fast for the gospel. Jesus reassuringly calls us to his word. He reassuringly calls us to himself. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's a holy thing. And it's a very reassuring thing when Christ calls us this way. And he's calling the disciples here that way. And he says, you have no fish. Well, Jesus already knew that. And then something in Jesus' voice inspired enough confidence to do what fishermen are never keen to do, to take advice. (laughs) Bishops don't really like taking advice either, but I'm diverging from my notes and I'll get myself into trouble. Cast the net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. And there's a terrific haul. Look at it there in verse 6. Peter and John react immediately when John sees this miracle. He knows what is happening. He's reassured, what by? Not so much by the experience, but by the Word of God, by Christ's reassuring call. And when John sees it, he's reassured it's a moment of revelation and recognition. And he says, look, verse 7, if you have Bibles and you do what I do, sacrilegiously underlining verses in them, this is one that ought to be underlined. In fact, if someone next to you has got a Bible and this verse is not underlined, I give you permission to underline it in their Bible. John makes a confession of faith in response to the Word of God and the experience of meeting Him It is the Lord. So simple, yet so reassuring. And Peter, the action man, well, he sees this as a summons to action, and he jumps in the water ahead and swims to the shore. There on the shore is Jesus with just what they needed after a long night on the boat, a cooked breakfast on the beach. Wow! Fish and bread. Verse 9. And they are tired and wet and hungry and confused. And Jesus is loving and thoughtful and prepared and waiting. That's why it's so beautiful when we respond, isn't it? To the word and the call of the Lord. Our Lord's extraordinary tenderness. And then verse 10, Jesus invites them, look at this, to contribute to the breakfast from their own catch. Just as well they put the net over the other side or they wouldn't have done very well for breakfast that morning. 
And it's a reminder for us in God's church to look for the resources that God has already provided for us in conjunction with His almighty provision. The disciples had caught 153 large fish, verse 11, and then verse 12, the wonderful invitation from the Master, come and have breakfast, and none of the disciples dared to ask Him, who are you? Because they knew, they knew, they knew it was the Lord. No doubt they had hundreds of questions in their minds, but they are silenced in the face of their unshakable conviction that this is Jesus, whom they knew unmestakably alive but different, now part of a realm that he had talked about on the other side of death. And I'm almost certain the Apostle John tells this story principally to build faith and to nurture belief in the risen Lord Jesus. That's verse 14. I've stood there, no doubt, as some of you have. Brenda and I, Lord willing, will be there in a few weeks' time, right on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, where this resurrection story took place. And for our benefit, John tells this story to convince us that it is real, that this has happened, that this is not a figment of anyone's imagination. This event in John 21 is written to persuade us that there is now another starting point for thinking and for living. I wonder if you've made that starting point. A starting point that isn't the market economy, it isn't intellectual ability, it isn't international power tricks, uh, politics, or renegotiated trade agreements from Wellington, or anything in any of the ideologies of the world. It's none of those. We as the disciples of Jesus have the privilege of saying with the disciples on the lakeside, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. And of bowing in worship and submission in response to the risen Jesus. That personal resonance in this story is so impacting for me. But there are wider resonances that we're meant to hear in John's account. And when I was rereading this passage just as we were worshiping before, I began to see all these other resonances. But I thought, well, I've only got time for four, and Lord willing, I'll get through the four this morning. Here's the first one, a resonance about power. Would you say power? Power. A resonance about power. This Jesus is Lord of all creation. The disciples were experienced fishermen. They weren't deluded fools, as some suggest. They knew that this catch was another miracle. It was a sign and so, of the supreme authority of Jesus over nature itself. And this wasn't the first such sign, was it, that they had seen? And this is why John is so quick to see that this is the Lord. This is the Lord. The Apostle Paul develops this theme very impactfully later as he writes to the Colossians. And he says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Many of you will quote it with me. The firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created. Things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things 
hold together. Nothing that you can see. Nothing that you cannot see. Nothing from the past. Nothing in the present. For our future, nothing is beyond the scope and reach and authority of the risen Lord Jesus. This should reassure us. Not only in the journey that we are undertaking as Bible-believing Anglican Christians in the 21st century, it should reassure us as we look out over the world. I live in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., That's not a particularly reassuring place to live right now. But I am reassured because Jesus is sovereign and Lord over all creation. That is the very first resonance, whether it's a shoal of fish or the safety of a nation or my individual future or yours, all are ultimately subject to the power of the risen Lord Jesus. That's the first resonance, a resonance of power, the Lord of all creation. Secondly, there's a resonance about mission. Would you say mission? Now, I know St. Stephen's has a great heritage of engaging in the mission of the church, and for that, I'm thankful to God. There's a resonance here for us in the word about mission. Jesus is the Lord of salvation. And are we, I wonder, meant to see here Echoes for Peter and the others who were first called by Jesus in Galilee to be fishers of men. Is there a parallel here for Peter? For all that lies ahead in the work and advancement of the gospel. Could it be that the Lord is wanting Peter? Could it be that the Lord is wanting us to see that? Work done in the power of the resurrection produces an amazing haul. Not of fish, no, but of people, men and women and young people. A hall that goes way beyond expectations and dreams. A hall where everybody is in the net and nobody is lost because the gospel net does not break. And it's landed safely on the seashore. I believe we are meant to see that because this story underlines the impressiveness of that catch. I'm talking about a resonance of mission. Look, look with me in the Bible. Go there with me. Uh, Even if you've got your Bibles and you're finding the sermon boring, go to another passage. I'll never know. But those of you who don't, go to verse 6 with me. Look, they couldn't haul it in. It's a big haul. Verse 8, the net was full. Not partially full, it was full. Verse 11, we're told how many? 153 fish. Wow, that's a catch. Isn't there just a hint here of the reach and the effectiveness of the gospel and a reminder that the risen Lord Jesus is the one who brings in the catch, yes? There's nothing wrong here with the disciples' fishing experience or their technique, or their methodology, or their know-how, or their equipment, all of those things would have been good. It's a little bit like us in evangelism, isn't it? We can do all the right things. We can say all the right things in all the right ways at all the right time. But what is needed is a touch of the risen Lord Jesus to transform lives and transform our effectiveness into Holy Spirit-empowered evangelists. Surely... We need the Spirit's empowering here in this city. I've wandered around this city in the last few days, a city that I love and know so well. How desperately your city 
my city needs the gospel of Jesus. You see, a church that wants to see any degree of effectiveness and mission has to throw itself into prayerful dependence at the feet of Jesus and trust Him to work in His resurrection power. Yes? Here's the third resonance. It's a resonance about fellowship. This is the Lord of the church. Notice this. Here He is on the beach with a fellowship meal. Communion with Jesus, we might call it. Not, not bread and wine this time, but rather bread and fish. Fish which can be the wonderful, uh, came to be the wonderful symbol of the Christian church, the symbol that many of our brothers and sisters who were persecuted then and who are persecuted today came to be known by. The symbol of the church, the ancient Greek word ichthys, fish, which served as an acronym, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Fish, that powerful biblical image. It's an image about our communion with Jesus. And here is an invitation to a meal from the Lord. And an invitation to a meal in the Middle East, then and today in Jewish culture, carried so much greater significance than a quick bite together at McDonald's or standing together in the long line at Subway. I reveal my fast food preference to you. <laughs> and Marmite, as I know you'll say, Brother Steve. <laughs> you see, a meal with Jesus is an invitation that expresses or implies a desire for communion of heart and intimacy and fellowship and friendship. And Jesus is the host. Look. He's not an unwilling participant. Verse 12 of our passage, do you look, see with me? Our Lord issues an invitation and he says, come, come. Come, Jesus issues the invitation. They are the guests with the Lord on the beach and nothing else seems to matter. Of course it doesn't. Jesus taught them in the upper room, you'll recall some of you, about that special meal which looked forward to his sacrifice and all that would imply. And he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper, another meal that speaks of continuing gracious provision of Jesus for his followers, a common meal together that establishes not just friendship, no, but forgiveness and mutual commitment, bread and wine together with Jesus together with each other. Does not this meal on the lakeside suggest to you the possibility of quite extraordinary intimacy with the risen Lord? It's incredible, isn't it? The possibility of a relationship with Almighty God which will be fulfilled, Revelation 19, in the ultimate meal to which we look for, the great wedding feast of the Lamb. But now we're given a foretaste of that. I'm reminded of uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which I try and read at least once a year. I struggled with it uh, in the original language this past year. It's so much better in the original <laughs> As the traveler Christian crosses over the final river of life with all its uncertainties and all its obstacles, and eventually he lands safe. He lands safe on heaven's side. So there are resonances for us here of fellowship and intimacy. It's beautiful again, isn't it, with Jesus. 
a personal resident, a res- resonance. Can I say with John as I consider this passage, it is the Lord. It is the Lord. A resonance about power, the Lord of all creation. A resonance about mission, he is the Lord of all salvation. And a resonance about fellowship, he is the Lord of the church. One final resonance that I want to offer to you this morning. A resonance about love. Love. Would you say love? Can there be any more appealing words anywhere in the New Testament highlighting the heart of the risen Jesus than these words, come and have breakfast? Who would have thought it that Jesus would speak so lovingly? An invitation from a heart of love. An invitation that reminds us about human need and human worth. Your need of Jesus and his love of you. An invitation that takes us to the very heart of the Lord's love for us. An invitation that reminds us that the Lord knows and understands all our weaknesses and uncertainties just like those seven who were in Galilee that morning. All our longings. And in his love and in his grace, he says, Come, come, come unto me. The words that Archbishop Cramner would choose in our Anglican liturgy to beckon us to come to the table. Come unto me, says Jesus, all those who are heavy laden and carrying burdens, and I will give you rest. So you see, at the heart and center on the lakeside, with the fire on and the bread and the fish, all waiting is Jesus issuing an invitation calling us to breakfast. A God who loves and cares and serves and acts. This is the stranger on the shore. This is the one in the mist. This is the one who's, who rises to fill the entire horizon. This is the Lord of power and love and mission and fellowship. Not just someone who Christians can know in some private way, internally. This is the Lord of all the world. And the resurrection opens up for those of us who would follow Jesus a new life and a new world. And that new life and world, though they be fulfilled in the life yet to come, begin here today in the fellowship of the church. That is why what we do here is so important. Gathering together to worship, gathering together to study, gathering together to encourage one another to respond to the same invitation of Jesus to come unto me. And the Lord beckons. He beckoned those on the lake that morning. He beckons us, come, come to me. Come and have breakfast. Come to Jesus who beckons us to the cross. Let us pray. Lord, we're hearing those words. Come. Come to me. Come and have breakfast. Lord, the tenderness and love of those words moves us deeply in our spirits. They tell us so much about who you are 
and how you act and how you love. And Lord, we are deeply grateful. We've already this morning had that great privilege of confessing our sins. And we do so because you issue that invitation to come to you. We've already this morning sung hymns and songs in praise of your great name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. What a great, a great word. It reassures us of your invitation to come to you. May we, like your Apostle John, recognize you as you call us to respond like him. It is the Lord. It is the Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.